3: Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. So, here we are again. Health Secretary Matt Hancock appeared on Julie Hartley Brewer's show this morning and talked about protecting the public from the dreaded and deadly coronavirus. He talked actually about saving hundreds of thousands of lives. You can't meet too many people, you can't go to Bolton as if you'd want to, and you might not be able to go out at night soon either. But don't worry, you don't have to worry about anything until Monday. So get your parties, your raves and your dinners organised quick uh, and get them all sorted out this particular weekend. You know what? If everything was so dangerous, why are we having to wait until next Monday before we put a new raft of regulations in? This morning I had the pleasure of listening to a toddler on a bus asking more sensible questions than I've heard in a very long time. His father was struggling to make any sense of it all, particularly when he was trying to justify why everyone was wearing a mask. Coming up later on today, we've got the second Prime Minister's questions with the ever-vigilant Sir Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson, of course. Let's hope it's a bit better than last week, which was très disappointing, I'd have to say. Political correspondent Charlotte Ivers will join us for that around about midday 0344 i'll be continuing with my crusade to get everyone back to work in our cities which has taken a bit of a swipe it has to be said thanks to matt hancock this morning my own children went back to school so we want to hear from all of you out there is the house a little bit empty are you wandering about wondering where everybody's gone because let's face it for the last six months everybody's been cooped up together are you missing them We want to know, uh, or are you glad to finally have got your life back? And you're off to the gym, you're off to the shops, you're off to... I don't know where uh, to get away from what you've been doing for literally the last six months. Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand. Also coming up later on, I'll be bursting the bubble of Extinction Rebellion and all those eco-planks who have been moaning on about pollution because there's a study from Ber- Stirling University up in Scotland uh, which has proven that air quality did not improve in the first few weeks of lockdown despite the fact that there were no cars being driven around at all and their wealthy backers in the USA are already distancing themselves from the anarchists after their stunt at the weekend blockade. Newspaper printing plant, so uh, things have taken a bit of a turn for the worse uh, for the old extinction rebellion crowd. Plus, Simon Calder joins us with the latest from the travel and tourism business. We are the home of common sense, of course, and we want to hear from you as well. So make sure you get your voice heard today. You know the number oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand, and of course, we are live streaming on YouTube, on Facebook, and on Twitter. So get on that uh, so you can watch us as well as listening to us. And you are listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course. Talk radio. Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Now, before we speak to Dr. Simon Clark, virology expert and microbiologist at the University of Reading, let me tell you a little story about my journey into work today because today I decided, I think I've decided, I'm still still going backwards and forwards about it, but I'm thinking it's time to get back on the tube, it's time to get back on the buses, the roads are an absolute nightmare. You know, Sadiq Khan has finally beaten me into submission uh, and my beautiful black shiny Range Rover sits in traffic so often for so long with my producer Martha and I sitting in it um, that it's starting to get to me starting to drive me insane starting to actually make me feel mentally incapable of doing anything other than rage right so I'm thinking I'm going to go back on the buses back on the tubes we shall see uh, if I stick to that but t- today I came in on the bus right and on the bus this lovely little boy got on with his dad And they were very, very nice. Uh, Clearly lovely relationship. Little boy sat up where the luggage normally goes because they couldn't get a seat. The, The father was there with his mask on. The boy wasn't wearing a mask. Daddy, he said, why do you wear a mask? And Daddy said, because it stops the germs from reaching out and hurting people. And he said, what are germs, Daddy? And Daddy said, germs are these horrible things which go from my mouth into your mouth and various other people's mouths and they give them a disease. Really, Daddy, he said why am I not wearing a mask then? And Daddy said, well, you don't have to wear a mask because you're a child. And the boy was very smart and he said, but don't the germs like me, Daddy? And Daddy said, well, the germs like everybody, but you don't need to wear a mask. And the little boy pointed at a woman who was sitting further along the bus and said, why does that lady not wear a mask, Daddy? Daddy said, well, um, she may have a very good reason for not wearing a mask. Do the germs not affect her, Daddy? Well, We're not sure about that, he said. It's a bit like you when we get those conversations with children when they go, why is the sky blue, Daddy? And you go, I don't know why the sky's blue. And you could see the dad was going, this is really (laughs) heading in a bad place. And eventually, you know, I thought to myself, this makes more sense to me than anything that's ever come out of Matt Hancock's mouth. It makes more sense to me than anything that's ever come out of any government spokesman's mouth or any chief medical officer's uh, mouth. And the little boy literally cut to the chase and made his dad look stupid. And it wasn't his dad's fault, but his dad was trying to explain effectively government policy. you all got to wear a mask, unless there's a good reason why you don't have to. You've all got to wear a mask, unless you're a child. You've all got to wear a mask to protect yourself, unless you don't want to, because of some medical reason. Let's talk uh, to our resident expert, Dr Simon Clark, about all of this. Simon, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Very fascinating that conversation was this morning. It really put things in perspective for me because you know how children have the great ability of just cutting to the chase and getting right to the heart of the matter. And this, this guy, this poor dad, who had to witness me and loads of other people listening to his answers, was clearly struggling to explain a policy which is clearly very muddled.
0: Yeah,
2: there's nothing like the clarity of a small child. I know. Um, a, a lot, A lot of these things, a lot of things we get uh, told to do, not just masks, but you can keep masks in that, uh, we don't get a good explanation for. We certainly don't get to see, as a scientist, uh, the data or the reasons behind those decisions or what drives them. You might get a few lines of explanation from Sage, but that's about it. And a few weeks ago, Sir Paul Nurse, who is one of these countries, no, one, in fact, the world's top scientist, he has a Nobel Prize for medicine, complained about this. Mm. We never get to see the, the data, the information that's driven the decisions that get made for us. So it makes it really difficult to comment.
3: It does make it very difficult to comment. But, I mean, I waited with bated breath last night because the word was out from sort of about, I don't know, six or seven o'clock. There was going to be an announcement coming out of Downing Street. There was going to be an announcement made either today or it was going to be leaked last night. Once I got the press release, I had to read it a few times to work out what it actually said and how different it made life uh, for the future from Monday. Um, And I still can't quite really work out what it is that they've
2: done. Well, yeah, I mean, they've, they've reduced the number of people you can interact with indoors or outdoors from 30 down to six. Right. I, I think I think I probably struggle to get six people around my house, let alone 30. I mean,
3: I right. was never thinking of having 30 people around at the weekend, to be honest.
2: No, my house isn't that big either. <laughs> I, it's, it's not something I don't think I've ever done. No. Um, and uh, Is it a sort of
3: Downton Abbey style um, uh, policy, this?
2: Uh, quite possibly, but my dining room table isn't that big, so uh, six people would be uh, be the, the maximum uh, that I could probably get anyway. But there's also talk I've heard of the possibility of a, a nighttime curfew, like they have in Belgium, and yes. that's just talk. Um, but I do wonder what effect it would have because we don't really have much of a, a nighttime culture in this uh, in this country. The, uh, the the restaurants tend to close fairly early, and the nightclubs aren't open anyway.
3: Well, I don't know about that. I mean, I was out the other day um, uh, for a dinner, and I was in a restaurant. We sat outside. Um, it was quite busy. Uh, all the tables outside were occupied. There was quite a lot of people walking around, um, and it was around about 11.15 when we left. So, I mean, I would call that a nighttime culture.
2: Okay. Is that in London? Yeah. Yeah. You see, most of us don't live in Well, London. you live
3: in Reading, which is about as dead <laughs> as can be, right? I mean, you might as well live in a cemetery, for heaven's sake. You know, you're just going to get out a
2: bit more, Simon. I, I don't actually live in Reading. I live just outside it. But right. <laughs> There's not much more life here. Not no,
3: no. Listen, I take I take your point. I, I mean, I used to live in Wiltshire. I've also lived in Sussex. I've also lived in Scotland. Yes, it's true that in you know the more rural uh, parts of the world that you live in, they, they tend to be a little bit quieter, I suppose.
2: That's true. So you do have to ask the question uh, about what what. What, what impact it'll have. Right.
3: But I guess the pretty point steep. is as well I mean, looking at somewhere like Bolton, which is also now in the kind of eye of the storm, because it appears to have jumped massively in terms of the numbers of infected people per 100,000. It's gone, I think, from 15 to 120, which is pretty uh, steep, I would have to say. What do you think that's all about?
2: Um, you have to ask the question uh, are more people turning up for tests? Uh, I'm sceptical about uh, the sort of nationwide increase being down to more testing, but uh, is there a focus on on the area? Um, like Bolton, Bolton isn't the only one. Uh, are people mixing in their homes more? Uh, are people going down the pub more? I think that's a bit difficult. I,
3: I mean, yeah, but these are all important questions that really should be answered by the by, yeah. by the health secretary, aren't they? Yeah, but we don't have an answer for them. But why don't we have an answer for them? Because surely one of the things we know uh, is that either, yes, we've got a lot more testing centres in in, in any one particular place. Certainly Leicester would have appeared to be uh, the recipient of that situation. If Bolton is uh, rising in number that high just because of testing, surely we should know that.
2: Well, we should. Um, and to be fair, Matt Hancock has said he doesn't think that it's just because of testing. But it's one possible explanation for the contribution. I suspect it's down to a, a number of factors. But there really is no clarity on it. I've got to say, I don't buy this narrative that we're hearing that it's all down to young people or that it's down to their rule-breaking. Right. Because I see people of all age groups breaking rules. Yes, absolutely. And, yeah, younger, younger people go down the park, they congregate in the parks, But those are perfectly within the rules. There's nothing wrong with doing those things. So just because perhaps younger people are uh, in greater numbers enjoying the freedoms that that we're all allowed doesn't mean they're breaking any rules No, and I think people ought to remember that.
3: No, I think you're absolutely right. I think to blame any one particular group I think is is, yeah. is the wrong way to go absolutely. because you're going to end up sort of stereotyping people and or victimising groups of people which is entirely unfair. I mean I had a conversation with somebody the other day uh, who said that she got onto a train uh, without a mask on because she have got to wear it and she literally got chased down the platform by some old guy uh, who was shouting at her saying what the hell do you think you're doing you're trying to kill me and it's like you really don't, it's not very helpful that you
2: know? No, it's not. And frankly, it's none of his business. Right, You should have reported it to uh, to somebody working at the station. Well, or, or uh, if you're that or,
3: concerned, just go and stand in a different part of the train. I mean, the trains are not very busy, that. you
2: know? There is that. I mean, it's easy to forget. I've walked into shops a couple of times with a mask in my pocket. Yeah. Got, quick pong. um And uh, I did it on a train last week. when I was in Portugal. Um, and it's it's easy to forget.
3: Yeah. Well, well, I had a situation the other day when I went on the tube and I walked through the, the barrier and my phone is my is, you know, is my Apple Pay b- device for paying yeah. for the for the tube. and uh, But it re- needs to recognize my face. Right. So I had my didn't have a mask on. I put the, the, the phone onto the onto the, the, the machine. I went through the barrier. Two coppers standing behind the barrier. One of them said, have you got a mask, sir? I said, yes, I have. I'll put it on when I get on the train. And the other guy went, well, you're supposed to put it on in the station. But it was quite kind of narky, you know, and I, I thought to myself, you know what? I mean, I can't say what I thought, but, you know, um, it, included, <laughs> it included the F word. And I was sort of like, you know, but it's so easy for that to turn into something um, if, if somebody wasn't quite as tolerant as myself.
2: Yeah, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of latitude for us all to rub along with this. Nobody likes what's going on no. at the moment. I certainly don't. It, nobody enjoys it. Um, and people ought to realise that... You know, we all know that people make mistakes, they forget things. There's no need to be rude and officious.
3: No, exactly. And I mean, if this was such a big deal as well, which is always my first point of call, and this is similar to when they said they were going to introduce mask wearing on the underground in London, um, they said, we'll do it a week on Wednesday. And you kind of go, well, why don't you just do it now? You know, this business of, you know, no more than six people congregating. Does that mean that if I go for lunch today with, say, eight people, I won't be able to do that next week because after Monday, you can't have more than six?
2: Uh, it does mean that, and uh, the logic behind it, I can't say I uh, I understand. No. I was, in, I was in Portugal last week, and I deliberately timed my return because I thought they were going to impose uh, quarantine yes. restrictions on Saturday morning, so I flew back on on, uh, on Friday afternoon. Mm. Had I lived in Wales, then I would have been caught and I would have been uh, banged to rights. But no. in England, they announced them on a Thursday and introduced them on a Saturday morning. I know. Um, I, yeah, I guess that's because that's people have... I mean, I think
3: all data. of us, I mean, Simon, I mean, you've been, you know, an incredibly busy man over the course of the last six months I've, you know, <laughs> I barely see a day goes by without you being on Sky TV. But, you know, we've all sort of gone through the whole gamut of emotions, I think. and And I think more and more of us are reaching this point where you go, what's the point of all of this, you know? And it's not that we're in any way dismissive of the disease. We're not cavalier about it. You know, we still know that it can be dangerous, but nevertheless most of us i think certainly most of the people i talk to who are intelligent reasonably um uh, you know well informed people who are work for a living and people who um you know would like some proper clarity are all getting a little bit fed up with this kind of warning system which is warning us of something that most of us don't think we need to be warned about anymore
2: uh yeah i mean in time they might uh Uh, be proven to be wrong about that but um i i I do detect a a fatigue around this yeah um and uh i've got to be honest with you i don't think there's uh there's a way around it I think it's somewhat inevitable this morning I was talking to a mate of mine who's a, who's a research scientist and absolutely gets what's going on and he said to me oh I just want life back
3: yeah and um, I think most of and- us say that and most of us are again you know we're not cavalier we're not reckless we don't want to you know start a second wave or anything like that but very few people now think there is going to be one
2: uh, I've got to say I would disagree with that. I don't know when it will come along. But my, you know, my, my motto all along from this, right from sort of February, was live your life as best you can and as well as you can. and mm. Don't live in fear of this thing. Right. Uh, be sensible know what the risks are and live your life accordingly. But I certainly have no intention of living my life shut behind my front door.
3: No, quite right. Dr Simon Clark. thank you very much indeed. Sensible man, virology expert, microbiologist at the University of Reading. Doesn't live in Reading. Uh, No offence to people that do live in Reading, uh, but it is a bit quiet, let's face it. Let's have a listen uh, to what Matt Hancock said. He's the health secretary, of course. He spoke to Julie Hartley Brewer this morning and he explained why the government's decided to impose these more strict rules on the number of people who are allowed to gather socially.
2: Sadly, Julia, we are seeing
4: the spread of the virus predominantly um, between households. Yes, amongst young people in, uh, for instance, in Bolton, where I've had to take some really firm action, uh, but also across the board. And we've got to protect uh, jobs and livelihoods, and we've got to protect education, so important that the kids have got back to school, uh, and, and tackle the virus where we see it, being uh, transmitted
3: we'll play some more from matt hancock's interview this morning with julia hartley brewer but i'm like uh uh, dr Um, simon clark that we just spoke to slightly confused as to what difference this will actually make i don't think it's going to make a huge difference to most of our lives it's not as if you were going to invite 30 people round to the house at the weekend were you you weren't going to have a barbecue for 25 maybe you were but, you know, the point is, is that, you know, now being told that you can only operate in groups of six, what's going to happen when Extinction Rebellion go on the march the next time? Are they all going to get arrested? Because that's never happened before. If Black Lives Matter decides to have a march on Sunday or possibly on Tuesday after the new rules come in on Monday, are they going to all get arrested? No, of course they're not. It's rubbish, isn't it? This is Talk Radio. Talk radio. Now, uh, let's talk about something slightly different. We've been talking about Brexit for the last couple of days. We've been talking an awful lot um, about, of course, the COVID nineteen situation. Because um, one of the things that we hear all the time, particularly uh, in the latest uh, few days, with Extinction Rebellion blockading print plants and trying to do the very level best to make sure that uh, everybody doesn't uh, doesn't get to read a newspaper about anything in particular. There's a fascinating study that we spotted that just came out yesterday from the Institute of Social Marketing and Health at the University of Stirling. Uh, and the, the uh, it was all about traffic. It was all about air pollution. And here's what it says. A decline in vehicle use during lockdown has had absolutely no impact on reducing toxic particle emissions. Uh, traffic is not a key contributor to air pollution. Let's talk to one of the uh, uh, authors of the study, Dr Rory Dobson uh, from the University of Stirling. Rory, very good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Interesting this, I read it yesterday, and I, and although you will probably do what most scientists do when they encounter journalists and say, yeah, but the problem with you journalists is you take one fact and turn it into a story. Um, there's actually a lot more to it than that, and I accept that that's probably true. Um, it is interesting though, isn't it, that one particular type of toxin doesn't actually go away, uh, and, and your study in fact says it might. the air quality in people's homes might be actually worse than it is on the street.
4: Yeah, so I, I think um, what we were really interested to find when we uh, did this study, um, we were expecting to see a small decline in um, those toxic particles, those very small, very small particles yeah. outdoors. Mm-hmm. We didn't really see that um, that that decline, um, and and what I think that really highlights is that absolutely this kind of air pollution is really important, but we need to think about uh, where people are um, are exposed to it, and very often people are exposed to this kind of uh, toxic air pollution in in the home so if you're spending long periods of time in your home and say your partner is a smoker and they smoke indoors you could be exposed to, to a lot more than if you were commuting um as normal mm. or if you even even innocuous activities like um like cooking like um uh, lighting a candle those can create those high levels of
3: um of toxic particles right and i noticed that you're mentioning uh, something called pm scale which sure. is particulate matter just tell us a bit about what that actually is so particulate
4: matter is um uh everything from from dust that you can see down to um, incredibly tiny particles that you, you can barely see in the microscope um and the kind we were interested in is called particulate matter it's smaller than 2.5 microns mm. what that really means is just those particles that are small enough not just, to, not just to just that you breathe them in but that you breathe them in they go all the way down deep into your lungs and when they're deep in your lungs they can cause lots of different kinds of damage they can they can affect um the the parts of the lung that actually take in air make it harder to do that so cause things like um uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease like emphysema they can get into your bloodstream and they can um there they can cause all kinds of havoc and they can cause um heart disease and they've even been implicated in stroke so breathing in those kind of toxic fine particles um i think it's a really good argument to say that's the most harmful kind of air pollution that we
3: know and one of the things that we hear from extinction rebellion all the time Uh, is that, you know, it's air pollution that's killing loads of people all over the planet. They had to actually remove some of their claims from a a film recently uh, because it turned out they couldn't really back them up. But certainly there is a a general kind of belief out there that there is um, a number of people dying every single year because of air pollution. But from what you're saying, it may not be anything to do with cars.
4: Well, um, I think it's important to say we did this study in Scotland, and um, some some of this stuffs uh, you were talking about common sense. A lot of this stuff is common sense. Mm. Scotland's a really windy country. Yeah, and, um, and I know and, I used to live there. <laughs> well, um, well, 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 I'm I'm just hoping you can't hear the howling outside today in Edinburgh. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, Scotland's a really windy country, and um, again, common sense. That means that. Um, uh, that, that outdoors, that quite often blows pollution away. It's very different if you look at, say, um, say somewhere like um, like Delhi in India, or like um, uh, Shanghai in China, or even go go down to Milan in 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 northern Italy. Um, those levels of fine particles created by cars, created by um, heavy industry, they can be very, very serious. But what I think um, I'm, I'm certainly um, I mean, I study air pollution for a living, this is um, I'm certainly not saying air pollution isn't important. I think it really is. I think what we need to do is look at the kinds of air pollution that are causing the most harm. Yeah. And sometimes for a lot of people, that's going to be indoor air pollution. Um, that's going to be, again, I, I know we, 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 people like me always bang on about this, but smoking incredibly harmful, but also some things like um, cooking, if you have poor ventilation in your kitchen, Um, and things like wood-burning stoves can be really, really harmful. It's interesting, actually,
3: because I was was listening to uh, an interview yesterday with Andrew Lloyd Webber, uh, who was talking about trying to get theatres back into business, and he was actually saying, and and maybe from what you're saying, he's making more sense now, he said, actually, the air inside my theatres is better quality than it is out on the street, because they've got such great filtering capabilities, they've got this system in place which basically is an air-conditioning cleanser. Um, So it may well be that a lot of your research could be helpful in kind of um reopening places where people could go where at the moment they can't go well i think
4: that's a really interesting point um it depends a little bit i don't want to get too far into the weeds um but um you hear a lot now about like droplet transmission versus mm. aerosol transmission i think we've we're all everyone's turning into an epidemiologist these oh, days yes. yeah all, those, all <laughs> those
3: former experts in world trade have now become yeah absolutely I, own, I see yeah. them on twitter every day <laughs> um,
4: but um we um uh in in thinking about indoor air, absolutely one of the things you think about is ventilation um and and filtration. Um and um uh having those kind of those kind of really, really high quality filters, they can um uh they may be able to 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 to, to, to assist in um uh in taking taking virus particles out of the air i should stress i'm not i'm not qualified i'm not a virologist i'm not gonna i'm not gonna make any big listen big claims, you know an, an awful
5: something... lot
3: more about this stuff than most of us do uh, <laughs> i think you are be false modesty does not uh, de- de- deserve you but let's talk about food cooking and stuff like that because are there i mean can you tell me that there are specific types of cooking that are worse than other types of cooking for example i mean if you've got i mean i made for example last night i'm not showing off it's just that i quite like cooking i made a very nice chicken biryani last night uh, which okay. i did in the oven um if i had made that on the Stovetop top instead would that have been worse for my air pollution in the house um it's
4: i'm going to be really annoying and say it depends but um in general um in general again a bit of common sense um frying things is quite often a, a, a cause of yeah. um of quite bad um uh fine particle pollution um because um uh again the, the, these kind of fine particles are quite often related to things that are things that are burning right. and burning in some sense or another and um, so if you're if you're frying something and you're um you're exposing it to, to those really high temperatures in oil um then you're gonna create those 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 fine particles so um there's there's been there's been a a decent amount of research um done on this the the kind of particles that are produced quite often they don't last as long as as some other things like um uh like from a wood-burning stove mm. or again particularly from from smoking yeah um and 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 um, that's or an something open i think fire, it's really presumably is not great, yeah right. an open fire absolutely particularly if you don't have very good um ventilation if you um if if um if, if some of that smoke's coming back into your yeah. room that can be quite um quite harmful mm. so you need to you, you um it's important to think about how long you're exposed to these things as well it's not just about if, if you walk into a room with high levels for five minutes very different you, you, you that can be better for your health than walking into a room with moderate levels for for
3: three or four hours right interesting and because one of the other myths i think that is exp- expounded by extinction rebellion and another and eco-friendly groups is that you know electric cars are the future now aside from the fact that electric cars as far as i'm concerned are one very expensive two not particularly green when you think about the batteries and the way that lithium is, is mined out of the ground by children in africa um cars that that drive on the road with rubber tires, um, and that use brake pads are always going to pollute the air, no matter what. So, and in a way, electric cars may not uh, exp- expel any particular toxic exhaust, but they still pollute the atmosphere.
4: So, there's a small amount of um, of of that 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 kind of uh, rubber-based um, uh, uh, pollution that 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 is created. Mm. Um, I think it's important to 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 state this is, this is this is um pretty pretty new stuff but we we do think that there are some differences in the kind of particles so things that have been burned may actually be worse for you like considerably worse than I mean i mean there are all sorts of different sources of 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 particles things like um sea salt is a good example I mean if you're standing on the top of ben nevis you're still going to be breathing in some fine particles mm. we do now start we do now think we've got we've got developing evidence that um some kinds of particles particularly those produced by by things being burned like in a combustion engine, like in a car could be worse for you than 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 other sources so that's mm. important to take into account as well and again i want to stress we, we did this study in scotland um very specific circumstances if you were looking in 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 milan or 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 in somewhere like um like delhi or like in shanghai you might see very a very different um very different uh situation you might and you might even see a different situation in some parts of london
3: yes indeed well dr rory uh, dobson thank you very much indeed for joining us university of sterling fascinating uh subject matter uh, all about air Pollution. You see, even I can tell you, and if you're in Extinction Rebellion listening right now, listen to this very carefully. Even I can tell you that air pollution is a lot more complicated uh, than you think it is, right? The study says that despite the fact that there were really hardly any cars on the road, and forget about the wind, right, for the moment. Despite the fact that there were hardly any cars on the road, the air pollution levels in Scotland did not dip because of the fact that there were no cars on the road. The air pollution levels pretty much stayed the same. And I've got some more bad news for Extinction Rebellion. These are the bozos who thought it was a great idea to try and block the progress of democracy by stopping newspapers from being able to print their newspapers on Saturday morning and distribute them uh, to the readers that they have, right? It turns out that the American backers, the big millionaires who back Extinction Rebellion, amongst them a guy called Trevor Nielsen, the Kennedy clans, the Getty family, they've all expressed their very disappointed demise of, uh, of of support for extinction rebellion they basically said that they think uh, that blocking newspapers was not a helpful strategy so by the way guys at extinction rebellion you better start working for a living because the americans are not going to fund you anymore because you're a bunch of complete idiots well done congratulations not only did you stop sir david attenborough's piece from going out in the sun which was all about saving the planet uh, you bambooed and stuck yourselves to various lorries, lay down the road, tried to stop newspapers from coming out, apart from, of course, the Guardian in the Mirror. Um, and it looks like you've shot yourself not only in the foot, but also in the head. Well done. This is Talk Radio.
0: Mid-morning with Mike Graham, Cork Radio.
3: Now, it is Wednesday, it is 11 o'clock, and it is that time. Uh, it's time to speak to Neil Oliver, of course, the host of uh, Coast. I can't, I've never said that before, actually. Neil, very good morning to you.
7: Morning mate, good uh, to see
3: you. Yeah, good to see you too. I was very encouraged when I read your piece. I didn't get around to it. It's funny, you know, how the weekend goes. I find I find myself reading your Sunday Times piece usually on Monday, but for some reason I missed it until Tuesday this week. Um, but it was a great piece about how terribly awful TV news has become and how, you know, like me, you kind of became slightly addicted to TV news in your kind of teenage years because your parents were always watching it and you wondered why they were doing that. But it is awful, isn't it, that we have come to this point in in in, uh, in journalism where you really can't trust anything they say anymore.
7: Yeah, it's not just me. I'd have to say, I mean obviously the, the piece in the, in the Sunday Times was my opinion, but I did base it on the kind of straw poll that every one of us is able to do, based on what they hear from the friends, yeah. the neighbours, casual encounters that you have in the street, and so many people of all ages and all parts of the demographic are saying to me they just can't bear the news. Mm. And they mean, they mean the news on the television. And it's, it's a it's a great loss, a sadness to me. I've trained as a journalist. i worked in newspapers, uh, as you did. And, you know, the, one of the great joys in newspapers, if you work in newspapers, is... The offices were always full of every newspaper under the sun. Mm. So you read right across the board, you know. So you and you knew that newspapers were partisan. Yeah. You know, the Mirror was was Labour, and so was the Guardian, and the Telegraph was conservative, and, and so on. And you could you could read right across the gamut, and it was fun. But the the, the television news, in my mind, always uh, played the role of like umpire or referee. Yes, it, it adopted a, a, a position of having no position and you kind of went to the news just to get information reported in, in the best possible sense of the word, in a kind of a bland fashion. It was a kind of a vanilla um, magnolia paint color v- version of events. And you weren't really, a great game would have been to try and guess you know, what what opinion a newscaster might have had mm. because they were so careful and never seeming to declare a loyalty one way or another. Right. And the television news for me played a very, very specific and important role. But now I, I've just become aware that it's become uh, as partisan as any other uh, delivery system of information. And I just find I don't want that in in from that medium. No. And increasingly, I just don't watch it. But,
6: and but the trouble is as well,
3: Neil, that, that well, unlike the Telegraph... Uh, and The Guardian and The Mirror and The Sun and The Mail and all of the things that you knew about those newspapers just by looking at them, the television news still attempts to make out that it is in fact neutral. So they don't tell you that they're going to be biased. They don't tell you that they're going to be coming at a story from a particular angle. They just expect you to think that that is the way the story should be told.
7: Yes, I think that is the problem. And uh, in so many ways, I, I think some me- some media are being left behind by reality.
3: Mm.
7: Audiences are getting increasingly sophisticated, and you sometimes get the impression that, say, in the case of television news, they still think that they're getting away with being impartial, uh, as coming across as impartial, while plainly not. Well, plainly being very partial and yeah. partisan. Right. They're trying to do both things at the same time, and they've been rumbled <laughs> a ago. Right. Well, even, so I mean, even just looking at
3: a story this morning in the papers, which, which I'm sure years ago, and I don't want to age myself too much, but in the, in the years of sort of Cliff Mitchell Moore uh, and people like that who used to read the news and even, um, you know, Jan Leeming, who was relatively straightforward on the BBC. We've got Naga Manchetti in the papers again today. She's been warned of a conflict of interest because she's been paid to be in a campaign for NatWest. Now I'm sorry if you're a journalist. I mean, if I was, if I was, if NatWest came to me and said we'd like to pay you a hundred thousand quid to do an advert voiceover for us. I'd say no, and the reason I'd say no is because the next time there's a story about NatWest, I would feel funny about slagging them off, and that's why I don't want their money.
7: That's right. I, I, that's that seems very plain. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In that in that role, uh, the, your your uh, your unbiased credentials have to be. Uh, you know, beyond uh, you know challenge, yeah. you have to be able to credibly say that you don't have any vested interest in any of the key players or moving parts in in any news story that might happen now or in the future. Uh, and you're obviously compromised as a journalist before you open your mouth. Yeah. Uh, if you're if you're in the pay of whoever, yes, you, you, the audience could know could not be expected to trust that you would be impartial no. in a story that might paint one of your sponsors in a bad light.
3: Right. Although although I come from the old school and I had a very good friend who was one of the great foreign correspondents in New York at the time, a guy called George Gordon, uh, who I learned an awful lot from. He's a Daily Mail foreign correspondent. He got a call once from the PR at Cunard because Cunard used to bring the QE2 into, obviously, New York quite regularly. And they would take all the journos out. Uh, on a little voyage out into international waters, throw money at them and let us gamble and drink and do all the things that journalists like to do. Um, And he got a call from this woman, right, who said, uh, we're a bit upset uh, today at Cunard because the Mail today has splashed on a story that... um, uh you know uh we it is not very friendly to us she said since we last took you out we've only had three stories in the paper the first one was about how you were refitting um the engines in germany uh instead of in britain the second one was about some kind of a engine stall in the middle of the atlantic and this morning's story is that the head chef of the of the uh, of the of the Cunard ship has got uh, aids and he said well imagine what it would have been like if you hadn't given me the freebie <laughs> <laughs>
7: Well, yeah, yeah. The, the impartiality, that's all I'm asking for. Yeah. You, know, I, I, you know, newspaper journalism is a, is a, is a multicoloured beast, of, of course it is. And, and I think we're all sophisticated enough to know that we can go to all sorts of different sources now hundreds, thousands of different sources. Uh, if we want to hear opinion, yeah. And sometimes you want to hear an opinion you agree with, so that you can grind your, uh, so that you can, you know, you know, enjoy it. And sometimes you want to have your, you, 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 hear someone say something that gets your gears grinding, you know, because that can be interesting as well, just to hear the the opposing sure. view. But there needs to be, there has to be, especially in times of crisis. I and mean, I think that I think what's brought it, what, what's brought my, my, my frustration with the with the television news to a head, is that we're in a time that you might justifiably describe as national crisis. Uh, with lockdown and and the pandemic and everything else that's going on at the moment, uh, and at a time like that, you need uh, you need unifying forces. I think you, you need certain uh, uh, points in the in the in the environment that, that people can gather around and feel united and have a common sense of purpose. Uh, and the the news, the television news, uh, should be something that people can just stop everything, take a minute, and just feel as if they've caught up with some unbiased coverage. And and it's part of, you know, the the society moving forward as one. But the the universal partisanship is just increasing the divisions between people. And I I just have this awful sense of us being uh, uh, trapped, unable to move uh, constructively in any direction, because half of the oars on the boat are pulling one way, Mm. and the and the other side of the ship are pulling the other. And we're just going round and round in circles. Uh, and the, the constant division is perpetuating that situation. And we can see it, you know, and you know, here, every decision that we seem to be asked to make as a population seems to be quite close. It always seems to be around the sort of 50-50 mark, mm. Brexit and the rest of it. The same thing's happening in, in North America. You know, they seem to split 50-50 between the Democrats and the Republicans election after election. And there's a, there's a sense, because of that 50-50 split, in which no one, it doesn't matter who wins or, or who's got the, the tiny majority at any given moment, because the other side are, are pushing so hard, or pulling so hard against whoever the majority want to go, that, that there's this terrible stasis. Uh, and at a time like this, when we're facing a, a war, if you like, you know, we're at war with COVID-19. Yeah. That is the perceived enemy. And we need to be united. We need something to pull us together. Uh, and I would have thought it would have been a perfect time for the for the television news to take that role of trying to pull everyone together, and, mm. and instead it seems very effectively to just be increasing the atmosphere of of division. Sure. And- Well, it's interesting,
3: isn't it? Because, I mean, it was only a couple of weeks ago that the news broke. And in fact, it was the front page of the Mail on Sunday uh, that there's there's two, one of them emanating from inside this building. Uh, There's two possible new TV channels starting up, which will have a sort of right of centre direction, if you like. Um, But I wonder whether the reason for, because it used to be that you'd watch the TV news for sort of footage of stuff, wouldn't you? You'd watch TV news because they would have the film of what was something terrible happening in in Burma uh, or in Rangoon or in Hong Kong and you would see the video footage. But now it seems to be personality-led and it's sort of personality journalism. And I wonder if that's the change.
7: Yes, I I do think there's there's definitely a part of of the truth in that because you have to uh, buy into the... You have to like the person or not uh, because on a daily basis, you're hearing their opinions. And so you have to find some accord or you have to be the kind of person that that likes to be... that likes shouting at the the screen all the time... And I'm not one of those people. I, I just can't be bothered with it. Uh, and so, because it, it, nowadays, with so much of the news, it's it's so you can so quickly discern uh, what way someone is is facing uh, politically or, or yeah. their opinion on any given matter that if it doesn't chime with your with mine, I just tend to think, oh well, if 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 it's opinion I'm after, I can get it somewhere else. Right. I don't need to get it here as well.
3: Right. But also, do you not find it fascinating in a way that... uh, I mean, you've also... uh, There's a piece in the Mail this weekend as well about your kind of constant battles at the moment with various... Um, issues in Scotland, you know, the hate bill, uh, the hate speech bill, which is coming through uh, your defence of and and or uh, kind of, you know, uh, know, musings on Boris Johnson and on on the State of the Union and all of that. And it does feel I mean, I, I know exactly what you mean when you say you feel as if you're in the First World War trenches, sort of genuinely fighting people off all the time.
7: And I've got, for some reason, I've discovered within myself really that I didn't know was there some kind of uh, stubbornness mm. that I hadn't really hitherto had appreciated. I, I took a great deal of. I've watched a few times. I'm sure you saw it as well. There was a clip on on YouTube and whatever of one of the uh, a restaurant outside. It, People sitting outside a restaurant in one of the troubled American cities—I don't know if it was Kenosha or Minneapolis—and Black Lives Matter protesters were haranguing people sitting at tables and trying to force them to raise their fists into the into the the, the Black Power power salute thing.
3: Yeah,
7: and and most of all of the visible uh, customers had you know had cowed were cowed and had and had raised their hand because there was a mob of. white people as it happened, screaming, screaming into the faces of these patrons of these restaurants. But there was a woman in a pink blouse or a pink shirt who was steadfastly refusing to raise her fist. And for right. the duration of the footage, she didn't raise her fist. And I thought, you know, be that woman. Yes. <laughs> no, absolutely, absolutely. And I, took, I took great heart from it because there are times when it doesn't, more important really than what it is that a mob is, is shouting, even if the mob were right, hypothetically, if they're using shouting mm. and threats of violence to get their opinion across, then the only response is to is to refuse to buckle. Yes. Well, I, I like I like that scene. It's
3: like that scene in Midnight Express. You know, when he goes into that room and they're all walking around the pillar and they're only doing it in one direction. He starts walking in the other direction. That's me that's what i'd be doing <laughs>
7: you have been. so i have discovered cause i you know inadvertently and naively i suppose wandered into into territory where i had a contrary view to a lot of outspoken other people mm. I, I, f- I found myself being shouted at mostly metaphorically speaking yeah. i mean 99% of it is keyboard heroes but i'm being shouted at in some way and i think no if there is one thing that I will not submit to, it's being yelled at.
3: Right.
7: I don't care what the opinion is. If it's being shouted at me, and if it's being uh, reinforced by threats of violence, real or imagined, my only position that I have to adopt is to say no. I will. I will resist that push. Yeah. Uh, you know, with all with all available strength that I have. So. I'm in this kind of, I I, I use this sort of analogy of salient and the war of attrition because I don't see any way out of it. If I continue to be shouted at, Mm. I'll just have to keep on doing what I've been doing. And it's obviously wearing and I'm bored with the whole thing and I'd like to move on. As long as I keep on being, as long as large numbers of people keep on insisting that I change my views or shut up. Right then, I won't change my views. <laughs> I I shut up.
3: up! No, I know there is. there's a certain sort of cussedness, as my mother would call oh. it, um, which is, I think, a fairly Scottish trait, to be honest. Uh, which I definitely have, and which is very almost addictive in its in its own way. Because um, while, like you, I occasionally think, Do you know, what I just can't be bothered, and I'll put the phone down for a while and just leave it. Especially at the weekends, when I'm with the kids, I'm just like, you know, I'm not going to get involved. Um, but you know, it's quite tempting to just give it back to them because you just think you know who the hell do you think you are telling me this or telling me that or calling me this name or hurling this abuse at me I don't believe that you have the right to do that without me coming back at you
7: it's quite, it's quite interesting when you consider your own personality under those circumstances yeah. because you've come to realize that the inside of your head or your personality is populated by more than one character mm. in a sense yeah. and you know, it's like these people with you know multiple personality syndrome it, it, it appears that it's only when you get put into a certain circumstance or a certain set of circumstances that suddenly out of nowhere a, a character almost like a different character in a novel suddenly comes center stage. Mm. And you hadn't previously known that you were inhabited by that person, and so I have I have found this character inside myself right. as a response to these uh, the circumstances in which I found myself, and I find that quite fascinating. Mm. I would never have known that I had this trait if I hadn't blundered haplessly <laughs> into this <laughs> into this political and culture war. But yeah. Sometimes I have somebody living inside me who just won't shut up and just won't stop.
3: Well, also you do, it shouldn't be forgotten, have some pretty decent causes to fight for because, you know, you are still in the midst of this hate crime bill. And and interestingly enough, talking about, say, the coverage of TV news, I mean, I I know enough about Scotland to know that the, the media in Scotland is far more partisan in a way politically than the media in England is. in terms of, you know, I what they write about. You, have you lost so me? I've lost you at the moment, mate. Oh, OK. Um, so Neil can't hear me at the moment. We'll come back to him. I mean, what I was basically saying is, is that we know, for example, uh, there's a newspaper called The National, uh, which is published by the Glasgow Herald Group, which should actually, to all intents and purposes, be a proper newspaper. But it turns out that it's not a proper newspaper. It is, in fact, a, a sort of a hymn sheet for the SNP and all it does really is promote the SNP's views. And every time, in fact, you've appeared in, in the, the pages of The National, I think, Neil, after being on this show, haven't you?
7: Oh, oh all the time. The National, uh, yes, I, I, I appear, I appear, uh, well, I don't know, I, I don't see it. In, in fact, I, I think it's got a very small circulation, I believe. Yeah. Um, but I, as far as, as newspapers, it's, it's, it's more like a, a newspaper that said, that's had one too many baby shams at a party, and she's really just <laughs> gone, gone beyond the point of reason, and yeah. there's really not much more point in it hanging around until it's had a good night's sleep. Um, and yes, I have I have suffered the the brickbats of of their attention, but uh, you know that it's just it's just part and parcel of uh, the of the political situation. That's yes, it's it's obviously I'm very affected. In, uh, about what's going on in Scotland, but it's a—it's across the board. It's just so high-tempered at the moment, and that's why you know to get back to you know the, how our conversation started this morning. There needs to be some kind of uh, calming, uh, sober voice in, in the midst of it all, where regardless of your particular opinions or point of view, that you can just go to. Almost like the you know, hear ye, hear ye, you know, speaker yes. in the Times Square. You just need to be able to rely on getting some up to date, unopinionated information that lets you feel as if you're keeping up with the with the state of play and the state of the nation, without having to worry at the same time about the motivations of the of the people who are uh, who are giving you, who are giving you that. You know, you, otherwise we start to stray into the territory of agitprop. Mm. You know, when political propaganda is pushed out to the people. Via the by, via the popular media, you know, and agitprop is a is a tactic that everyone associates with you know, you know Soviet Russia. Yeah, it's it's hardly a it's hardly a, a state of affairs that you would think that anybody would want to import uh, into a twenty first century Western democracy. No, but interesting, right. interesting as well, isn't it
3: that that there's a view currently being held, certainly in Westminster, by the by the lobby hacks. That basically Dominic Cummings has kind of led Downing Street further and further away from what he would regard as consultation with any journalist. Uh, Doesn't really care about journalists at all, and so they basically get their messages out a variety of different ways, which then leaves the journalists to kind of have to come up with their own stuff.
7: Yes, and I think I think another another uh, I don't I'm not even going to call it I'm not going to categorise it as a danger. I think it's just a fact of life. What the, what the the mainstream media don't seem to be accepting effectively enough is that there are a myriad spectrum of other sources of information. Uh, and, and quite often, you know, things that are online and whatever, they're often characterized as conspiracy theory or, or downright lunacy. And they're, you know, they're, they're derided and refuted in all sorts of ways. But be that as it may, even if that were true, and I'm certainly not saying that all the information that's available online is, is you know, is fake news. I'm not at all. I don't right. believe that. At all. I think there's a lot of good sources of information out there. But it remains the case that, as far as I can tell, people are being driven more and more away from any sort of terrestrial, unifying, popular media uh, into into the online options. And people are... are those, those audiences are growing exponentially, uh, and that is that's just a fact. And what what it means is that a lot of the traditional sources of information are now becoming irrelevant. Mm. I don't know what the audience figures are, but I can only imagine that across the board in, ter- in terrestrial, uh, terrestrial news, I assume they're going down. They're not very good. I can tell you that for and, a fact. And, and and other other sources of information are becoming in- increasingly popular. And I am I am assembling for myself, as I'm sure many people are, sets of podcasts. Uh, people online, uh, people where, where there seem to be these long-form conversations, mm. where people of all sorts of political and religious creeds and colours seem to be invited to come together and have long, calm, sober conversations. And I'm going increasingly to them. Yes. And, it, and it's not by any means because I agree with everything that I'm hearing. It's because in the context in which those people speak, you see that they're being listened to and they're all being given... Right. Uh, Oh, credibility and what a big problem that I have with so much of the terrestrial television news is that you they, they suggest that they're having a panel of people, but you know right away that, that one or two have the same opinion as the as the newscasters or the presenters and they are in, introduced and taken more seriously and in, invariably even in the, the way in which the other people are introduced, you can tell that they're being teed up as the as the characters that are going to be knocked down. Yes by the presenter and other people on the panel as the conversation goes on, right. they're almost as if they have been brought in just to be knocked down. Yes. And and it's, it has affected the debate over, say, uh, uh, climate change, extinction rebellion and so on, always seem to get an, an easier time uh, in terms of the way that protests are, are policed and looked after out in the public domain, and then their spokespeople uh, tend to be allowed to dominate the debate. And anyone who has a contrary view... Is set up as a crank and a denier,
3: right.
7: and that's not that's not any basis for uh, for de- for debate and conversation going on because you can't. We're in this situation all the time now where, where people are being called stupid f- for having a contrary point of view away from the what the terrestrial media seems to regard as as the right opinion, and it simply doesn't work to call people stupid. No, no, even if. Are. even if people are stupid you're not going to get anywhere by calling them stupid no, i find it much better to
3: let them speak and prove that they're stupid in actual fact but listen uh, we're running way over i'm in big trouble now with martin my producer but i'll finish with this neil um a piece of breaking news for you just to show up uh, exactly where we are in the world donald trump has been nominated for the 2021 nobel peace prize this is talk radio talk radio right now though uh, it is time for homeschooling now my children went back to school today uh, and so many of you parents i dare say will be wandering about the house wondering whether whether you can sit down whether you can enjoy a sandwich whether you can watch some afternoon television because the kids are out of school finally you got rid of them finally got them off your hands but we're still going to do the homeschooling for the what for the foreseeable future because a lot of people find it quite interesting one i find it really interesting two uh, and also uh, you learn about something that you didn't think uh that you knew anything about. We're going to talk now to Dr. Mark Whitton, uh, who's a paleo artist, a paleontologist and a flying reptile specialist. Sounds quite terrifying. Dr. Mark, a very good afternoon to you.
5: Good afternoon. How are you doing?
3: Very well, indeed. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Flying reptiles. Now that conjures up sort of, you know, all sorts of horrors, isn't it?
5: Well, it, it does, uh, and certainly if you think about what you see in kind of films yes. and you know, lots of television shows, that's that's definitely the impression you get. Obviously, as a, as a scientist and as someone who draws these things myself, um, I tend to try to understand them more as actual animals mm. and not as
3: monsters. Yes. I mean, they are fascinating, though. I mean, dinosaurs are fascinated uh, the human race, I guess, for for centuries haven't they? Because they are so unwieldy looking, they're so kind of strange looking, and almost, um, you know, when you see, for example, um, a reenactment of a pterodactyl flying, it doesn't look like it should be able to fly.
5: Well, indeed, and I think that's, uh, I mean, for for pterosaurs in particular, which is the that's the the, the term, uh, the, the scientific term for for te- pterodactyls, mm. they are um, very difficult animals to understand because they're they're just anatomically somewhat unusual. And I think we're We've been studying these things for, as you say, two centuries, and it's probably only about now that we're really getting a handle on how they took off, how they flew. Um, there's a lot of you know, a lot of challenge when you're just working with, with bones and often incomplete bones. You know, don't always have the full skeleton. It can take a long time to actually understand how these things went together, what they looked like and how they worked as sort of
3: biomechanical machines, if you like. Right, because I'm looking at a, a, a little sort of sheet here. A pegomastax. Uh, which I've never heard of before. Apparently is one of the strangest dinosaurs known to man, a cross between a parrot and a porcupine. And probably somebody like yourself, Dr. Mark, would have much greater knowledge than, than most people on dinosaurs. There's probably lots of dinosaurs that we don't really know about that you do know about.
5: Well, I mean, I'd hope so. Otherwise, I'm not doing a very good job uh, with what I do. But um, yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the real things to come out of paleontology for the last, say, half century. So studies in dinosaurs have been going on for, for 200 years. But in the last half century, we've really started to learn about what they were like. And I think one of the major things to come out about dinosaurs is that a lot of them really didn't look anything like we traditionally have assumed they have, uh, and one reason for that is because a lot of them were covered with feathers mm. or the kind of the evolutionary precursor to feathers. So things like um, uh, things like Velociraptor, mm. for instance, we know for fact that Velociraptor was covered in feathers. It would have looked like a sort of imagine a flightless uh, ground eagle, if right. you like, with teeth and right. big claws. Um, it looks completely
3: different to the kind of things you see in Jurassic Park, for instance. Mm. So it's not a sort of miniature T-Rex, which is how they kind of portrayed it, wasn't it? Well, indeed. I mean,
5: in in those films, obviously, everything's scaly. uh, And there's been you know, among the paleontological community, we kind of feel that it's really time that films started putting feathers on dinosaurs. I mean, the, the real thing to take home about dinosaurs is that dinosaurs aren't extinct, birds are dinosaurs. They are a group of dinosaurs that come from the same lineage as things like Tyrannosaurus and Velociraptor. Right. So any bird you see today is a living dinosaur. You know, the pigeons you see outside on the street, that's a dinosaur. A seagull is a dinosaur. And so, um, you know, this, this knowledge uh, really changes how we view dinosaurs and what they should look like when we're, when we're depicting them. And it's it's kind of annoying in a way, you know, for an educator that we still have to be challenged by the kind of the very scaly depictions are, that are still in film. I mean, mm. this isn't new science. This is stuff that we've known about for decades and it's still not being kind of correctly shown in, uh, in pop culture. Right. So we kind of want to change that, you know, that's something we need to do.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because if you were going to depict... Dinosaurs, as they really looked because they had feathers rather than scales, there's nothing to say that that wouldn't be just as frightening or just as um, you know, incredibly sort of interesting to look at. Um, you might as well be accurate if you're going to make films about dinosaurs, it would seem to me indeed
5: i mean this is an sort of interesting question is that at some point if you're calling something tyrannosaurus and you're not portraying it what a tyrannosaurus looks like then you start to think well you're not really betraying a tyrannosaurus are you <laughs> i mean this would be like putting a tiger in a film and taking the stripes off and still calling it a tiger right. it's like, well it's kind of what makes a tiger is the stripes you right. know it's like so putting showing a velociraptor without the feathers um you're kind of not really showing what a velociraptor looks like so as you say if we're going to do this we might as well do it correctly yeah and that's something that we still Still, we're getting better. We're definitely getting better. Uh, but, you know, we, we could be doing a superior job, I think.
3: No, quite. I mean, I suppose the thing that really makes um, the difference between what are now the birds of, uh, of the world and the dinosaurs as they existed before, their skeleton uh, is similar and their kind of makeup is similar, but they're just a lot smaller. So why was it that the large dinosaurs didn't sort of um, continue to, 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 to reign over us, as it were, and, and they kind of disappeared as 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 much bigger um, um creatures
5: yes i mean this is this really comes down to kind of a, an ecological aspect so the the dinosaurs that existed before 65 million years ago were doing all sorts of really you know different things to what live and birds are doing so uh the vast majority of them didn't, didn't fly obviously some of them were giant plant eaters giant herbivores mm. and so you end up being a very different looking animal to a small flying dinosaur which is by by, by virtue of being a flying animal you tend to be on the smaller size the biggest flying animals that have ever existed get to about a quarter ton in weight so about 250 kilograms the biggest dinosaurs that existed you know over 65 million years ago were probably 50 tons or more in weight so you know this is all just about what kind of animals they are um you know, what they what sort of adaptations they need to be able to live the lifestyles they, they were they were doing right. and of course we know that all of those really big spectacular dinosaurs um, we know that they all got wiped out in a big mass extinction about 66 million years ago a big asteroid came in hit the planet around the Gulf of Mexico and uh, you know that was a real bad day for life on earth Something like 70% of species got wiped out in that extinction and when that when you get such a cataclysmic event, that's, you know, just ecosystem collapse and all those big dinosaurs that mm. need lots of food that, um, you know, rely on these big healthy environments to live in, they're just all going to get wiped out.
3: And was the landmass then kind of not what it is now, as it were, was it all part of one thing? Because we, we find basically dinosaur fossils all over the world, I suppose. Um, again, you'll know more about that than me. But was this as was the earth as it is now in terms of continents? Um, it was getting
5: closer to what it is now. So when dinosaurs first appear about 220 million years ago, all the continents were part of one big landmass called Pangaea. Right. But throughout what we call the Mesozoic era, which is the kind of the is the middle period of life on Earth, um, if you like, throughout that period, the continents start to break apart. So they start all together, but they start to drift towards their modern configurations. And so by the time the dinosaurs go extinct at the end of the Cretaceous period, about 66 million years ago, You've got the continents looking roughly where they are now. You've still got some way to go. You've still got 66 million years of continental drift to occur, but you've, you're getting things roughly where they are now. So things like South America, by this point, is separated from Africa. Mm. And you've got North America and Europe and Asia. We're kind of all in the northern hemisphere. Um, one of the strangest things is that India is still kind of hanging around quite close to Antarctica, quite close to Australia. And uh, what you see with with India is that throughout the Cenozoic era, which is the era that we're in now, which uh, which follows on from the Mesozoic era, um, India sort of sprints. You know, if you can imagine a continent sprinting, it sprints Mm. up to collide with Asia uh, relatively recently. So that where it's collided with Asia and it's building the Himalayas, that's still happening now. That's still a recent event. The Himalayas are still a young mountain range still being built.
3: Okay. And do you have a favorite dinosaur, Mark? Because obviously you study these things all the time. Uh, Do you you have one that you particularly
5: like? Um, It's difficult. I mean, I I think I have to say my favorite dinosaur at the minute is my pet chicken called Bort. Um, (laughs) uh, That's my favorite living dinosaur, I would say. Uh, In terms of fossil species, I I don't know. Because, I mean, I work on so many different things. I get employed a lot as an artist to reconstruct different fossil animals. And it really is, what am I drawing that week? Because, you know, you start learning about these things and they're just so interesting. and. you know, it's it's really difficult for me to pick one favourite. Mm. I would say, if you put, you know put a gun to my head, I really do like the big long neck dinosaurs. I think they're so they're just so yeah. unusual. Yeah, they're so huge. They're so um, so extreme. anatomically extreme. They're they're really interesting animals. Yeah,
3: like so the brontosaurus, that kind of thing. He said, thinking of the only long neck dinosaur he could remember.
5: Yeah, Brontosaurus is a a fantastic animal and so much weirder than you assume. I mean, you look at the the neck of Brontosaurus is amazingly fat. It's really, really wide. And uh, current thoughts on why that might be the case is that these animals might be sort of wrestling with their necks. Mm. So if you imagine um, elephant seals, when elephant seals are fighting, they kind of slap each other with their necks. And they kind of, I say slap, it's much more powerful than that. They're kind of wrestling with their necks and Mm. with the front of their bodies. And it's thought that some of these uh, big things like Brontosaurus might be doing the same. Right. Uh, So again, you're talking about how different dinosaurs are. I mean, what a radical idea to have these two 30-ton animals slamming into each other with their necks. I mean, that's, that's just pretty cool.
3: Absolutely. And do you think we'll find more species or more different types of dinosaurs that we haven't yet discovered?
5: Oh, all the time. So there's about a dinosaur announced every week mm. um there's really new dinosaurs this is a a golden age for dinosaur discovery um and it's uh, i mean the great thing is obviously with the internet you can keep up with it quite readily there's lots of websites lots of uh, lots of news articles coming out all the time about different dinosaurs that are being discovered just this week uh we've got a new species of burrowing dinosaur that was found at the end of its burrow mm. uh, so it was buried alive preserved completely crouched you know you just got to imagine this little dinosaur this big volcanic eruption going on um it gets buried at the end of its burrow because it can't leave mm. you know it's, it's completely trapped and right. you know discoveries like that have been made all the time and the places to look out for asia is particularly good at the minute so we're getting lots of new dinosaur discoveries in china in particular um but south america and africa um are kind of the 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 South America to some extent has, has been explored, but Africa, there's really not been much exploration for dinosaurs there. There has been some historically, but there's, there's going to be loads of new stuff coming out of the southern continents um, in the in coming decades because they're the sort of the the last blank spots on the map if you like for dinosaur exploration
3: fantastic well dr mark fascinating as ever as all these things always tend to be uh great to, to speak to you thank you very much indeed dr mark whitton a paleo artist paleontologist flying reptile specialist i don't really call um a burrowing dinosaur how about molosaurus something like that that might work